Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, we use population genetics to assess the risk of bat rabies in the UK and combine historical records with Y-chromosome data to elucidate the genetic diversity at the dawn of the surname in Flanders. Now before we get started, I should mention that this month is a special issue of the journal dedicated to environmental genomics and the exciting new approaches made possible by next-generation sequencing technologies. There's a great editorial which I urge you to take a look at, and lots of exciting papers, many of which I've already covered on the podcast in the not-so-distant past. So to begin this episode of the Heredity Podcast, we're going to start with a story from Dr. Martin Larmazio from the University of Leuven in Belgium. He's an evolutionary geneticist with a passion for history, and he was specifically interested in the genetic diversity in Western Europe at the time that surnames came into fashion. One way to go about this would be to get your hands on ancient DNA, but these samples are hard to come by, and Martin had a neat alternative. By combining the excellent genealogical records present in Flanders, the Dutch-speaking northern portion of Belgium, with surname data and Y-chromosome sequences, he and his team were able to paint a very precise picture of the Y-chromosomal landscape within and between six different communities as far back as the late Middle Ages. Martin started off by telling me how he got into this line of work. I am a biologist and working on fish, but at a certain moment after my PhD, I said it's not really my passion, and my really passions are, are history and art and so on, and I was looking for something that interacts with my uh, background as evolutionary geneticist. For me, it was very clear that it was uh, by combining genetics with genealogy we can use genealogies to go back in time by combining the Y chromosome with the paternal genealogy. And so paternal genealogy starts with the surname establishment, and that's in the late Middle Ages. And why were you interested in doing this? What was your main purpose? The main purpose was to go back in time till the 14th, 15th century in Flanders, in different communities. We want to check if the people then at that time were related to each other in their community and what is the genetic diversity at that moment. Uh, we could use then only the Y chromosome because then we can trace back to the late uh, Middle Ages, but we want to go back to uh, the situation at the time our surnames in Flanders, and that's in the 14th, 15th century, what is the population genetic structure and how are the persons in a community related to each other. Now it sounds like it might have been quite difficult to get the right recruits for a study like this. How did you find your DNA donors? Well, with uh, historians, uh, we look to the oldest records of surnames 
in the archives of the community. So that was the 14th, 15th century in the six communities we selected. Uh, and then we looked for people which has such a selected surname and also with an in-depth genealogy whereby the oldest reported ancestor lived as well in that community as well. Yeah, it was very difficult. We screened more than 1,000 individuals to only have at the end 300 selected DNA donors. And that was really very hard because there were a lot of criteria. And then we combined it with the Y chromosomes. By combining the three data sets, we had Y chromosomes of people in the late Middle Ages in those six Flemish communities. And how did you select those communities? Well, we selected six communities which are differentiated by each other uh, based on the geography. So we had three groups of uh, communities and all in different regions in Flanders. And within each geographical group, we had one village which was already populated during the Roman occupation, and the other was only populated since the early Middle Ages, so that we had differences in origin, in historical origin, and also in geography. It sounds like you couldn't really have looked any further back with this level of precision. Yeah, correct. We cannot go further anymore. (laughs) We have used all the information we get, So that's the start of the surname at the late Middle Ages, so we cannot go back earlier in time. And so how many different Y chromosomes did you end up sampling? Were they all distinct for each of these surnames? Yeah, it was an amazing observation that all the Y chromosomes could be differentiated from each other. We couldn't find any relatedness, even not on a communal scale, between persons with a different surname, although they are living together for more than 600 years in the same village still nowadays. And so that high diversity relates to the number of distinct family lineages found within these regions, but you also looked at the differentiation between those lineages. Was there any? Well, within a region, the differentiation was very low. We only saw differentiation between villages based on their geography and absolutely not based on their historical origin. So we only found differentiation when they were very far away from each other. So what we found on on a regional scale, we also saw on the communal scale. So within a region, we didn't find a lot of differentiation. There was only regional differentiation. And is that not what you're expecting from the differentiation? Yeah, so we we thought that that everybody stayed in their little village and that we could find differentiation between communities as they were small. And so because of of drift, we, we thought that the differentiation was much higher than we see here. Now, what does all this mean? What does it tell you about what was going on in these populations at the time? It means that people doesn't stay in their same village for ages. It seems that people migrated a lot during that time uh, of the surname establishment in the 14th, 15th century. So our impression that people always stayed in the same village is is not that correct. On the other hand, uh, we know for our region and for that time that there was also the plague, the Black Death, 
and that it was a time that there was a lot of migration. That is also the same for the UK, for example. We see there as well a lot of migration at that time of the Black Death. And here it's a similar signal that people who lived in the 14th, 15th century, when they get their surnames, they were actually coming from different other villages. And you also made some interesting findings about where you found the different levels of Y-chromosome diversity across Flanders. The most surprising result was that we thought that the most diversity was located along the coast and not inland, but we saw the opposite. We see that the lowest amount of diversity uh, was located along the coast, and that was really special to see because we thought it was an open border. The sea looks like that uh, for trading, for uh, Vikings, uh, for uh, pirates and so on. We, we think that there is a lot of migration across the sea, but we see there uh, along the coast that the, the genetic diversity in the late Middle Ages was much lower than uh, more inland. Is this study just useful for these genealogical studies or what other applications might these findings have? No, there is a lot of uh, applications. In the first place, of course, genealogy, but that's very specific for the families. But I had a lot of contacts with historians who find it very interesting for their research to find out, yeah, is there really more migration along the coast or around, uh, across the land? So that's also interesting for them. Also for anthroponymists, so people who are really interesting in surnames and how they are uh, origin and the origin of the surnames, when was it, um, how are the people related in the same region. But it's also very interesting for forensic people. I'm a forensic geneticist in the first place now, and uh, we use all these kind of methods and, and insights in this uh, data for forensic cases. There are already very famous uh, examples uh, in the low countries where we use this kind of insights that each surname has a different Y-chromosomal variant. We use that for very specific cases where we've, we collected samples for one particular village. It's very essential information to know how to differentiate those surnames and is this really a good approach to do? Is it really interesting to use the Y-chromosome to find uh, a criminal or to find uh, an unknown person uh, to, to identify? That was Dr. Martin Lermazou from the University of Leuven in Belgium. The second story this month is also about population genetics, but this time not for historical interest, but to assess the current risk of bat rabies in the UK. It's not as alarming as it sounds. There are no reported cases in England of this particular virus, the European bat lysovirus type 1. But southern England is home to a species of bat that harbours this disease on continental Europe, the serotine bat. And since it is potentially transmissible to humans, Caroline Mussey, who at the time was at the University of Exeter, along with her team, wanted to investigate this species' movements around England and across the continent. I started off by asking Caroline to tell me a bit about this lovely species. Well, the serotine is one of the most common bats on the continent in Europe mostly roosting in attics, people's houses during the summer. In contrast, in England, it's really uh, quite a rare species in a very fragmented population and limited to south of England. How did you actually get your bat samples then? 
Um, well, it's quite handy because it's a bat species that live at people's house. So usually we just sit around the garden and we put up some nets, some hand nets, and also some homemade traps and wait for them when they come out. And because it's people's house, usually it's quite comfortable. And we have the homeowners that are really kind and bring us some coffee and biscuits, which is always helpful at night. Sounds like lovely field work. Now, this serotine bat is a reservoir for a type of bat rabies. It is one of the reservoirs for this virus, the main reservoir for um, this particular Lysa virus, so the European bat Lysa virus 1. But it's mostly remaining within this species, basically. And the virus is potentially transmissible to humans? There's very few human cases. Actually, there's only been a couple of human cases, if I remember right. There's been quite a lot of work that's been done by people that have been monitoring roosts of infected bats. And these bats do not really come across humans. They don't actually. It's not because the bats got rabies. It's going to be flying around and trying to attack people. It just usually means that they just fit under the weather, really. So ultimately, this virus was the main reason that you were interested in the movement of this species? Yeah, because bats have the potential to move quite a lot. It's always a good idea to keep track of what's going on with your wildlife movement, and especially the wildlife that could potentially carry an infectious disease. Basically, England has been rabies-free for a long time now. But when we talk about rabies, we're mostly talking about the terrestrial rabies, the one that you know carries with wildlife like foxes and things like this. Uh, however, there are two main bat lysa virus. One of them is found in England, so that's the European bat lysa virus too. But the one that is potentially carried by the serotonin has never been found in England. So because we couldn't really monitor quite as well the virus, we wanted to monitor the movement of the host, basically. How difficult is it to track the movements of a species like this? Um, well, bats are very difficult to study in terms of movement, partly because they are nocturnal, so obviously working on animals at night is never really easy. Well, so mostly because they are pretty small, so you cannot actually put any tracker on them, only really limited to tracking a few individuals and for short periods of time. So you can't really have an idea of broad movement through the old populations. How did you get an idea then of the movements of this serotonin bat? Well, for this, we used the population genetics to actually be able to understand a bit more the, the movement of genes as a proxy for movement of individuals across the landscape and also try a better understanding of the social and the spatial structure of all these individuals across the UK. Um, and also through some collaborators, some people have been kind enough to find some samples from us on the continent who could have an idea of what was going on in terms of gene flow across the continent and then again across the English Channel. Okay, so you got the genetic data from across southern England and continental Europe. What did you find out about the genetic structuring of this species? On the continent in Europe, there's very little structure, so lots of gene flow all across a very large geographical scale. And we had a location all across Europe and encompassing some of the mountain range, like the Alps or the, the Caucasus or other. And despite this um, physical barriers that could have expected some of the colonies to be genetically differentiated from the other, there was very little indication for that. And in contrast, in the UK, where there's no geographical barriers, there's no mountains, and there's nothing that really could 
indicate such differentiation. We had quite a lot of structures, so east of England was quite differentiated from west of England and the Isle of Wight. Why do you think there was such strong structuring in the UK? We can't really be sure with the data we have as it is. However, there could be a behavioural difference. So these bats are really at the edge of their range. So that would limit already the movements. And the bats um, have quite some um, interesting mating systems where they actually mate at swarming sites or on the way or at hibernation sites. And for these species, we don't quite know where the hibernation site, but these two populations from East England and West England could possibly be the catchment area from some hibernation sites where all the summer population from around the area just gets together and then increase the gene through over a local area. But they are sufficiently differentiated from East and West to actually create this substructure. Okay, so there was this strong genetic structuring in the UK, but was there any evidence of gene flow amongst these populations? No, of course, there is definitely quite a lot of gene flow going on. Not quite enough to actually um, have a panoptic population, but definitely a lot of movement across. And this gene flow is mostly directed from east of England to west of England. And what about the gene flow between the continent and the UK across the English Channel? Yes. Well, we expected to have a bit less gene flow across the English Channel. Since we couldn't find the virus, it might be because individuals do not cross the channel and do not come to England. So England would be a very isolated population. However, when we did tests for gene flu, we actually found more gene flu from the continent towards England, uh, a lot more than what we initially expected. So these are still quite segregated populations, but there's still quite a lot of movement over the channels and uh, than what we thought initially. And I suppose this means that whilst we don't seem to have the virus at the moment, we might still get it from the continent. I think that's a possibility, but it could also be that the disease has already been to England. But because this population within England are a lot more isolated, then the disease might not have much potential to spread across the population and eventually just die out, basically. Right, so the British population might be protected from the disease, not because European populations carrying it can't cross the channel, but because the English ones just don't move around enough to spread it. Exactly, yes. The potential to spread for this disease might be quite limited in these species in England compared to the continent where the population seems to be a lot more mobile. Now, in terms of who is responsible for the gene flow in England, as well as nuclear markers, you used mitochondrial DNA in this experiment. Did that give you any clue as to whether this was male or females moving genes around? Well, we found a lot more structure on the mitochondrial DNA than on the nuclear DNA. So obviously the mitochondrial DNA is passed on by the female, so the effective population size is four times different than the nuclear ones. However, this differentiation was much larger than that, so that seemed to indicate that there are the males that are actually doing most of the allele dispersal in this species. What's next for your studies of this species? Well, I would like to actually get a lot more samples and locations from the continent because we did a really thorough sampling regime in the UK, which was 
easy enough because it's a small area. But on the continent, we only had eight locations. And I think we need a lot more to have a better accurate estimation of genetic diversity and better description as well of all the gene flu uh, happening within Europe to be able to really um, have a better understanding of this movement and also um, on the phylogeography of this species. And finally, do you think anyone listening to this should be worried about bat rabies in England or across continental Europe? I don't think they should worry at all um, because bats are not going, even with our rabies, are not going to go and fly and try to bite you and pass on to you the disease. If you find a wild animal, the main thing is not to touch it or not to touch it with bare hands and call people that are able to deal with it. And there's no reason to be worried about this disease as long as you just take regular precautions about handling wildlife. Okay, there you go. Nobody panic. And that's it from this episode of the Heredity Podcast. Join us again next month for a fresh instalment. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 